Jesus gave two parables on the judgment of God's servants in Matthew 25 and in Luke 19. In both, Jesus compares himself to a master who goes away to a far country and entrusts some resources to his servants to use while he's away. In Matthew, he gave each of the servants a different amount of talents, a talent being 15 years wages. Whereas in Luke, he gave them all a mina, that's 100 days wages. He told them to occupy themselves and use his money productively. Some of them were faithful to use that money, but others hid it away in the ground. When the master returned, he called them all to stand before him to give an account of what they'd done with his money. He then rewarded them according to their faithfulness. To the faithful ones, he said, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So our rewards include an increased joy in his presence through pleasing him. There are degrees of reward, for he made one ruler over five cities and another ruler over ten cities, as he was twice as fruitful with the same money. This tells us our rewards include ruling authority. The principle of being rewarded for our faithfulness rather than for our gifts is seen in Matthew, where the two servants with five talents and two talents are both equally faithful in doubling their money and they receive the same reward. Therefore, we're not to compare ourselves with others, for we all have different gifts. We are just required to be faithful with what God has given us. However, the lazy servant, who did nothing with his money, was rebuked and suffered a total loss of reward. He had to go to a place of relative darkness compared to the brightness of glory where the faithful servants lived. In Luke 19, having dealt with his servants, the master then slays all his enemies. And this speaks of the judgments of unbelievers in the tribulation and at his second coming. While Jesus is away, we're his servants. From one viewpoint, we've all been given the same new birth, the same Holy Spirit and word of God. But from another viewpoint, we all have different talents, gifts and abilities, positions and opportunities. But everything we have is ultimately his. The question is, are we using what we have to serve him and forward his kingdom? Or are we just putting it in the ground and not using the opportunities God's given us? What a wonderful thing it would be to receive the Lord's commendation when he returns. How sad it would be to be rebuked for being a lazy and disobedient servant. Although our good works do not save us, they're nevertheless vitally important in determining our eternal rewards. The eternal rewards at the judgment seat include five crowns. The Greek word used for these crowns is stephanos, denoting a victor's crown won by the athletes in the Olympics. The crown is given at the end of the race. The Christian life is like running a race. So when we've completed our race in this life, we'll stand before the Lord and receive our crowns. Jesus said in Revelation 3.10, I'll keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world, the tribulation, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly in the rapture. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown, your reward. This is the promise of Jesus' imminent return to deliver us from the tribulation by the rapture. He confirms that this is the time that he'll judge us and reward us by giving us a crown. He uses this truth to call us to stay faithful, so we don't lose our crown. So God has a crown waiting for you, if you're faithful. But if you're unfaithful, you'll lose your, your reward, and someone else will get your crown for doing what you should have done. So hold fast to your calling, walk in fellowship with God, and be faithful. 
Now let's look at the five kinds of crowns we could receive on that day. The first is the incorruptible crown, for walking in the spirit and not following after the flesh, for exercising self-control and denying yourself in this life in order to live a spirit-controlled life, for living in victory over the sin nature of the flesh. This crown goes to the man who puts God first rather than the corruptible things of this life. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, Paul compares him to a disciplined athlete. Those who run in a race, run to receive the prize, the reward. Run so as to obtain the prize, the crown. We need to have the same determination as Olympic athletes to run our best race and gain the eternal prize at the end of it. Verse 25 says, All who compete in the games for the prize exercise self-control in all things. Athletes go into strict training. They can't just eat and drink anything and waste their time and expect to win. Their eye is on the prize, so they dedicate themselves to run their best possible race, avoiding distractions and not indulging in things that would slow them down. They exercise dominion over the flesh, denying themselves when necessary. They sacrifice their comfort in the present for a greater and lasting future glory and honor. Verse 25 goes on, they do it for a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable or incorruptible crown. The fact that it's incorruptible confirms that this is an eternal reward. If they exercise self-control and denial for a temporal crown and glory, how much more should we be willing to control our flesh to gain an eternal crown? Whenever we deny ourselves to put the Lord and his work first, or suffer and sacrifice in order to do his will, we're gaining a greater eternal crown of glory, which will far outweigh anything that we've given up in this life. Verse 26 says, Therefore I do not run aimlessly. That means he runs with purpose. He says, I discipline my body. And that's in order to run with the purpose of fulfilling God's will. He says, and I bring it into subjection. Lest when I've preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's not talking about losing his salvation, but being disqualified from receiving his crown. 2 Timothy 2.5 agrees. If anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. In those days, athletes had to follow strict rules of diet and exercise in their training, otherwise they were disqualified, just as today's athletes are disqualified for taking drugs. Likewise, if we don't do things God's way, but take shortcuts, we will lose our crown. Paul said that rather than being body-ruled, he brought his body into subjection, so that he would qualify for an eternal crown. To be body-ruled is to dissipate one's life in the various works of the flesh listed in Galatians 5, including drinking, gambling, sexual sins, strife and worry. The result is disqualification, and Paul knew that even he could lose his rewards by letting his flesh rule him. The answer is to be filled with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit every day. And we can live a Spirit-filled life with the fruit of the Spirit rather than the flesh-controlled life. Then we'll gain a Christ-like character which God will crown with his glory. The second crown is the crown of rejoicing or the soul winner's crown. This is in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. He says, What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Likewise, in Philippians 4.1, Paul called his disciples, My joy and crown. Again, this shows that the judgment for reward will happen at his coming in the rapture. This crown of joy consists of all the people we've won to the Lord and discipled. 
it'll be given to all who fulfill the Great Commission. Thus it's also called the Soul Winner's Crown. We are often too careless and indifferent. God tells us to speak to someone or pray for them, but we're too busy. We put it off and so souls are lost. It's not enough to be ready for heaven. We need to take as many as possible with us. We should share our hope with them and invite them to come to heaven with us. The third crown is the crown of righteousness. At the end of his life, Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The crown is for those who keep the faith, who stay in the truth of God's word, persevering to the end. They run their race, staying in the right lane, staying in faith and in the will of God, walking in righteousness until the end. They do this because they love his appearing. They're focused on the end of the race, when they'll see the Lord face to face and receive his reward. Paul knew that he was at the point of death and had stayed true to the very end, despite every pressure to turn aside. So he knew he'd receive a crown of righteousness from the Lord on that day, that is, on the day of the Lord's appearing to the church in the rapture. Now the fourth crown is the crown of life, given for enduring trials and persecution faithfully. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, tests and trials, for when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Revelation 2.10, Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This crown is for those who are, who are faithful to the Lord under testing, who continue to love and trust him, enduring through trials, temptations and persecutions. If we continue to love him through sufferings, we will receive the crown of life. We saw before that 1 Peter 4 reminds Christians who are suffering for Christ that, that they'll soon stand before his judgment seat so they can rejoice because they'll be rewarded for their faithful witness. The fifth crown is the crown of glory for faithful leadership. 1 Peter 5 says, The elders who are among you I exhort as a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the, the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that doesn't fade away. Jesus will give this crown of glory at his appearing in the rapture. It's an eternal reward that does not fade away. It's for elders, and by extension, it's for all who are faithful in positions of leadership, whether it's in their family, job, or ministry. It's for exercising authority in the right way, with a willing and enthusiastic heart, loving, serving, and inspiring those under you, setting a good example to them. The greater your faithfulness, the greater your eternal glory. The more God entrusts to you, the more opportunity you have to prove yourself faithful and so qualify for a more glorious crown. But the other side of this is in Luke 12:48 that says, Everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Usually God starts by asking us to be faithful over small things. Be content to be faithful in what God has called you to do. And then as you prove yourself faithful over little, he'll entrust you with more. Jesus said in Luke 16.10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in very little thing is unrighteous also in much. One example of a small thing in which God requires you to be faithful is your money. 
Luke 16:11 says, therefore, if you haven't been faithful in the use of non-righteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? The true riches include greater anointing and spiritual authority, as well as eternal rewards. Verse 12 says, and if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? What you possess right now, including your money, is not really your own, because you can't take it with you to heaven. It belongs to the Lord, and it's on temporary loan to you to manage. But if you're faithful to use it right, on that basis, he'll give you an eternal reward, which will be that which is truly your own, for you will possess it forever. Although it will be a thorough and exacting judgment, God will also be generous, rewarding even the smallest act of kindness. Jesus said in Mark 9.41, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. God sees every good work of faith and love you do for him, and he will reward you generously for it with an extra measure of eternal glory. His reward is eternal, and so it has infinite value, for it will continue to be ours forever. So whatever we sacrifice will be as nothing in comparison. Matthew 19.29, Jesus said, Everyone who's left houses or brothers, sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold in this life and inherit more eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This last phrase tells us that there'll be many surprises on that day. Many outwardly successful ministers will get little reward because much of what they did was flesh and for their own glory, whereas others who seemed insignificant will receive great reward because they were faithful in prayer and they did what God told them to do. So don't be jealous of those who seem to be more successful than you. Just be faithful with what God gives you to do and in the end what will matter is your eternal reward. Our present body cannot handle the glory that God wants to reveal in us. Only a resurrected body can do this. After standing before the Bema in our new body and having our works purified by fire, our reward will be given to us by a release of glory through us that will clothe us and crown us. And the Bible says the righteous will shine like the stars in heaven in Matthew 13:43. but each star has a different degree of glory. Daniel 12.2 says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake to everlasting life. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. When we're resurrected, we'll receive a degree of glory shining out of us, which will differ according to our eternal re reward. 1 Corinthians 15:40-42 says that in our heavenly resurrection bodies we'll be like stars shining with God's glory. Not only will our heavenly body express a far greater glory than our earthly body has, but like the stars we'll have different degrees of glory from one another. He says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the stars, for each star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. This glory will shine out of us, appearing as white glorious robes. It will also crown us. These crowns represent our capacity to give glory to God. We'll also be given different thrones of authority to reign with Christ. That's in Revelation 3.21. The degree of authority and glory we'll possess in eternity will be determined by our faithfulness in this life. 
This should motivate us to follow the Lord Jesus with all our heart, realizing that any moment we'll stand before him to give an account and receive a, re a reward that will be ours forever. The eternal issue is not just whether we make it to heaven, it's also how close to God's throne we'll be and how much opportunity we'll have to serve, know and glorify him throughout eternity. Our reward in heaven will be our eternal glory, joy and authority. Much of our reward will be to have a greater capacity for God's life and glory, to have more of God. This depends on how faithful we are in doing God's will in this life and how much we allow God to mould our character by his word, and how much we let God's spirit of love control us and flow through us. The depth of our character determines the amount of God's glory we can contain and express in eternity. We'll be rewarded with position and glory in heaven according to the character we've developed and our good works in this life. So what we do now greatly affects our future eternal glory. As we walk in the Spirit, there will be sufferings, but as we trust and love God in them and through them, He's able to work a greater glory in us, which will only be manifested when our bodies resurrected. Romans 8, 17-19 says, If children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the re re revelation of the sons of God. The size of our in eternal inheritance depends on our faithfulness to him in this life. Yes, we'll all be perfectly happy and joyful in heaven. All our cups will be full and overflowing with God's life. Yes, we'll all be perfectly happy and joyful in heaven. All our cups will be full and overflowing with God's life. We'll all be filled with God to our full capacity. We'll all be shining as stars at maximum strength. However, we'll all have different capacities for God's life, joy and glory, depending on how we live now. As we love, trust and obey God, even through suffering, then a greater capacity for his glory, and therefore a greater glory, is being worked in us. So the depth of our character that we develop now by following Christ determines how much glory we can possess in eternity. As 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, and that includes our eternal rewards. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen, such as our rewards, are eternal. Galatians 6.7-10 also uses eternal rewards to motivate us. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. That's a greater abundance of life in eternity. And let's not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those of the household of faith. Ultimately, the due season is at the judgment seat of Christ. The choice we face is like choosing a hundred pound now, which just lasts for a week, or having ten thousand pounds next month lasting forever. We can either live unto ourselves now, but have no future reward, or live for the Lord and later receive a great reward that lasts forever. 
Of course, our greatest reward will be to know that we've pleased our Lord and helped people. It will be to hear him say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Although the teaching of eternal rewards and their use to motivate us is everywhere in the New Testament, some have trouble with the teaching of rewards, so we need to deal with some objections. Some think that being motivated by rewards is selfish, that doing things for reward is an invalid motivation. We shouldn't need a reward to do what's right. But this displays a misunderstanding of the nature of eternal rewards. We need to understand that rewards are not like sweeties that are unrelated to what we've done. Rewards are intrinsic to our decisions in this life, not extrinsic and artificial. For example, if your desire, as expressed in your life, is to seek the Lord and to follow him and to be close to him and to know him, then your reward will include the fulfillment of that desire, resulting in a special closeness to him with a greater opportunity to know him eternally. If your desire and joy is to serve the Lord and you did that faithfully, then your reward will be include greater opportunities to serve him. If you've been faithful with the authority he's given you in this life, then your reward will be to be entrusted with greater responsibility and authority to rule for him. Also, if your motivation in this life is to glorify God, your reward will be to have a greater glory with which to glorify him throughout all eternity. Therefore, rewards are not selfish, but they involve receiving more to use it to give to God and others. Another objection is that rewards are a form of works righteousness, whereby we earn blessings by our good works, which is incompatible with grace. Indeed, it's important to understand that our rewards are not some kind of payment that God's obliged to make for our good works. They're not wages for our good works. Jesus tells a parable about this in Luke 17, 7-10. Which of you, having a slave, ploughing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. That is, we've only done our duty. The word unworthy here literally means unworthy of any special reward. Imagine in your job you faithfully get to work on time and you do your hours for a few days. And then you go to the boss and you say, I've faithfully done my job the last three days. You owe me a bonus. It would be inappropriate to expect a special reward for doing a job you ought to do. Likewise, when we serve God with all our heart, we're only doing what we ought to do. He doesn't owe us any special reward, for he created and saved us. He's done everything for us. Therefore, his rewards are all manifestations of his grace. They're not what he's obliged to pay us. So we don't earn them by our works. So although he chooses to give us rewards for obeying him, he doesn't have to do it. So they're all gifts of grace that he chooses to reward us with. The final answer to those who object to the idea of eternal rewards is that our Lord Jesus himself clearly taught much on the subject of rewards and considered it a valid and holy motivation. For example, when Jesus encouraged us to build up our treasures in heaven, he was speaking about our eternal rewards. 
In Matthew 6, 19 to 21, he says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There are rewards and blessings in this life, but they're temporal, and they'll pass away. They wear out. But therefore, our most important and valuable treasures are our eternal rewards, which will never pass away, which will never be taken from us, which will never wear out. They last forever. These treasures in heaven are eternal. And Jesus says we need to focus on them. These will only be given to us after this life. So if we've got any sense, we'll build up our treasure in heaven by loving and serving God. If our main treasure is in heaven, our eternal rewards, then that's where our heart will be also. In other words, our main motivation and focus will be on pleasing God and we'll put his kingdom first. So make sure you're ready for this great day of judgment when you'll stand before the Lord and receive your reward. Make sure you're walking in fellowship with God every day, being zealous for good works. Focus on judging yourself rather than others. Repent of those bad attitudes.